Welcome to another episode of Overthoughts. My name is Dominic, co-host of What Exactly Am I Watching Here? And I am joined by two wonderful, wonderful human beings. Uh, first up, we have co-host of Men of Low Moral Fiber, co-host of How to Read Comics, co-host of What Exactly Am I Watching Here? He is the man I wish was co-host of my life, Mr. Jason Helms. <laughs> How you doing, Jason? Co-host of many trades uh, yes. and host of none. <laughs> uh, Jason, we're going to be talking about the film Annihilation tonight. You need to know what's inside. So do I. It's beautiful. Check this out. It's like they're stuck in a continuous mutation. Anything interesting in there? No. It's destroying everything. It's not destroying. It's making something new. How did you first come to uh, the story of Annihilation? How did you first become aware of it? Yeah, so I'm going to be, I'll be weird in a couple ways here uh, in that I read the books before I I watched the movie. I think I'm the only one of the three of us here who did that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I heard about the books because I saw a trailer for the movie and I saw a trailer for the movie and went, wait, the guy who did, did, who did ex machina is doing this thing. And it looks so weird and so beautiful. I was just struck by the visual sense of it. Uh, particularly the, the deer with the uh, flowers on their antlers, you know, that, that one image just stuck with me after the trailer. And I said, I got to read this book and find out what it's about. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a really quick read. I actually read all three books, uh, within a few weeks. Um, and it, yeah, they're, they're a great wow. read. So that's how I got into it. Nice. And joining Jason and myself is the host of Cinesoul, a dear, dear friend, a film aficionado to the uttermost, Senor Jorge Castellanos. My friend, hello. How are you? Buenos dias. Hello. How are you all? <laughs> Doing well. Jorge, if you had to pick a painter that you could compare the visuals of Annihilation to, who would that be? Wow, that's a great, great question. I think I think probably, oh, maybe a Matisse. Okay. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, one of that genre. Not, sort of Rembrandt, or excuse me, um, Van Gogh, but more Matisse, I think. Yeah. But... It's interesting. I was thinking to the answer to the question that you asked, Jason, how Mm. I came to it was just, you know, I saw a trailer while I was watching another movie. Yeah. And and I was all in when I saw the visual of the shimmer and realized that Alex Garland, who, as Jason noted, directed Ex Machina, which is a film that I loved and saw several times. You know, at that point, I was all in. I'm like, oh, I got to see this. Yeah, and that's before I even heard about the controversy of its release and and uh, the issues the creatives had with the studio, et cetera. So yeah, um, yeah, and we can we can definitely get into that a little bit. I'm I'm a little late to the game. I've seen the film, but just recently, uh, so I have plenty of questions, and we can just dive right into it. Um, so for for those unacquainted with it, what makes Jorge, you alluded to the fact that it's kind of a hard sell. Um, what makes Annihilation as a story a hard sell for 
a studio or for a broad audience, potentially. Yeah, I, I guess I'll, I'll go with the sort of default mindset of most, uh, most of the money behind films. They're looking for a hit. And what's a hit uh, is something that they can sell easily. And something that they can sell easily is something that they can explain easily that fits into that conforms to things that we've seen and we expect. And in, in kind of general terms, I think for the sophisticated audience, it it's a little bit different, but for, you know, perhaps a general audience, I don't want to, I don't want to dumb down the audience, but common denominator, you know, uh, lowest common denominator says that you got to make a film with a, you know, easily understandable plot and a happy ending. Yeah. And, and this film has none of that stuff. It's ambiguous. It's ambiguous in its telling. It's ambiguous in its themes. It's ambiguous in its resolution, if you can even call it resolution. Yeah. So I think it's enigmatic in a way. But, you know, I think some of the most amazing films in the history of the art form are that way. Yeah. And, you know, personally, I gravitate towards those films. I want a film that challenges me to, to think. I, I saw this film for the first time. I walked out of the theater and I said, huh, I don't know what to think of this film. Yeah. I need to see it again. And yeah. so I saw it the next day because it hit me at that level. It challenged me in so many ways intellectually and, and you know, somewhat emotionally, a, a little bit less so. For me, it hit me more in the head than in the heart. But mm-hmm. so I, I think that's kind of why it's maybe been a hard sell. Yeah. If we can, mm-hmm. if we can call it that. Right. Like it's not a it doesn't easily conform to one thing or doesn't, you know, say, Oh, this is the one thing that you're going to feel when you leave this movie. Yeah. Um, It's not designed for a single thrill. It's not designed for just a night of laughter. Um, It really, I felt very much displaced when I left the movie theater. Yeah. Uh, Great term in a, yeah. In a, in a really wonderful way. And and strange way because I didn't know how to get back to where I was previous, um, but I knew I was different. But Jay, what was so leaving the theater for you? What was the first thing you like researched? So where did you where did your head and heart go after you saw the film? I similar to Jorge, I wanted to I wanted to think rather than read what other people had said. Mm. Uh, that was something really important to me in that moment. Um, and you know, walking out of the theater, I was really just jazzed. I was really excited. Um, it was that the ending went a direction that I was not anticipating at all, uh, especially visually, and really cemented some of the associations I'd had in my mind to earlier films. Um, it was it it felt like a, a Kubrick movie. Then the ending felt like two thousand one. As as though it was, you know, let me be really clear. This isn't The Shining. I know you thought it was The Shining. It's not. I, I'm really thinking about 2001. Right. Um, oh, yeah. And so that. Not, Bar- not Barry Lyndon. Not Barry Lyndon. <laughs> yeah, not Barry Lyndon. Uh, no, I, and I really was feeling The Shining a lot be- just because of the unsettling nature of it. Yeah, I think like The Shining, it had a, it had a sense of horror to it, right? Absolutely. Yeah, this is horror. It, it looked like it could be action adventure, but it was definitely horror. There was a lot of like. Holy crap, what's going to happen here? Yeah. Um, again, taking a step back just on a, on a basic plot level. So a meteor 
of unknown origin lands somewhere on the southern coast and from the meteor crash begins to emerge this unknown entity that is eventually termed the Shimmer. Yep. And Natalie Portman plays a biologist who, along with four other, uh, there's a paramedic, there's a psychologist, uh, a physicist, and a geologist, uh, they go into the Shimmer to discover, A, what happened to a previous search party, as well as learn what is the Shimmer and possibly how to stop it. Yeah, and actually to ratchet it up a little bit, previous 12 search parties. Previous the, 12. I think they're the 11th, they're the 12th or the the 13th team in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're the first all-female team, although Garland has said he's not trying to make a statement with that. They're just all scientists, and that's what mm-hmm. he's more concerned you- about, not that they're all women. Do you believe him or do you like, well, that's, that's in the book. That's, okay. that's something that he's adapted from the book. This yeah. is the first all female team, according to the book. And I think the line about the one character says, Oh, it's the first all female team. And she says, it's the first all scientist team. Mm. I, I think that's such a great line of not saying, you know, it gender doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. But of saying, no, no, no. The, the reason we were chosen is because we were scientists. Yeah. We happen to also be the first all female team. Mm-hmm. But this is not necessarily it. It's a feminist statement in that gender is not the primary concern of why people were chosen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The film actually made me think of the thing. Yeah, uh, definitely. And that it, interesting in the sense of like kind of similar horror setup of the haunted house motif of a group goes in one by one, they get picked off, um, but the thing is all male. Yep. And yep. Uh, just the the difference of tone between the thing and annihilation um, and kind of tipping the hat to Jorge, some of the reviews and thoughts you've posted of how the shimmer like interprets a person. Mm-hmm. Um, you almost get the sense that the like, a movie would be each movie would be different if the character the main character was different because like the shimmer itself would change yeah yeah could i jump in real quick with just some uh some some book knowledge yes just to kind of collapse some things together i think the the easiest way to talk about because it is a very loose adaptation um i think it's thematically right on uh, Mm. and it picks up a lot of the plot points of the book um but also uses some plot points for the other books so in the first book for example we never know where it came from um, and it's not until the third book that we see it land next to the lighthouse, uh, wow. in a kind of flashback. So it's told, you know, in a very different way that the first book starts with them, uh, almost immediately entering area X, you know, that's, that's like right away. Another interesting thing is, uh, Natalie Portman's character in the novel is just called the biologist. She never has a name. Mm. Uh, all of the people don't have names and there's tons of psychological experimentation going on. Where you know we we've found out that if based on the previous eleven expeditions, uh, that this is important that you don't give anyone a name, that that will help you to not let Area X uh, take control of you. And they've heard these wild stories about the previous expeditions going insane. Um, there's a lot more. Um, it's not the thing that nobody ever comes back. It's actually that some people have come back, but they're not the same. Um, and no one's. There's only one person who's ever come back who's sane. 
Uh, and that's something that we learn is that that sane person, supposedly in lots of quotes, is now directing the program. And so lots and lots of, of minor differences, especially with the ending. Um, I think the biggest one, though, and this kind of consolidates everything, is the the title. So in the film, we get uh, Jennifer Jason Lee yelling Annihilation as she transforms. And in the novel, it's actually Annihilation is a... Um, a code word, a hypnotic code word that the psychologist uses on the biologist character. Huh. Towards about the two-thirds point of the novel, the psychologist tries to kill the biologist. And they're all under, they have this uh, mind control hypnosis stuff that's kind of lurking in the back. And the biologist has learned that because she's been exposed to some spores in Area X, she is no longer being controlled. Uh, and so the areas of um, forgotten time that we have in the film... Uh, that's explained in the novel by there was she was under hypnosis, and the psychologist has erased her memory of the last few days. Wow! And she's the only one who's figured this out. And so then the psychologist looks at her and says, "Annihilation," and she realizes that what's supposed to happen is she's supposed to kill herself, mm. and then she doesn't. Um, and they they have a nice standoff there. Uh, and I pointed that because it brings up a lot of different ideas. Uh, the whole mind control thing that's a big part of the novel. But the idea of self-destruction and the ways that that idea of self-destruction is is portrayed very differently in the novel than it is in the film. Yeah. Uh, in the film, it really comes to the front. Um, the line about self-destruction versus suicide. Um, and, and I think that idea of self-destruction might be the key idea uh, of the movie. Uh, how do we destroy ourselves? Why do we destroy ourselves? And is it, is it really built into our DNA that we must destroy ourselves? And if mm. so, and we can change our DNA, is that what we want? Well, you know, way to softball it, Jay. Uh, <laughs> right. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, I want to keep it loose. Yeah. Well, Jorge, you. And how about that color blue? Yeah. Man? And, right? and let's go back to the deer. I want to. I want to spend more yeah. time in the deer. It was pretty. It was. Really yeah. It pretty. was very pretty. Uh, Jorge, you you sent us a a review that that we'll post as well. Uh, that mentions and goes and dives deep into that notion of uh, self-destruction. And you said that this movie kind of hits you more on a psychological or head level as opposed to the heart. And so maybe, I don't know, like from your vantage point, break that idea down and, and, and dig into it a bit. Yeah. And this really picks up on what Jason was just talking about as far as the key theme to the movie being about self-destruction uh, I got to give a huge shout out to Priscilla Page at birthmoviesdeath.com who uh, wrote a fantastic review, uh, chock full of analysis, bringing uh, Jungian psychology into her thoughts uh, about the film. And the notion of self-destruction not only is is a, a key aspect of the movie, but uh, Priscilla really gets into that aspect and and just – bring some unique and and careful and thoughtful analysis to it. So big shout out to her. But, um, you know, she got me thinking about a lot of things. And we start out in the film very early on when we're being introduced to Natalie as the professor at Johns Hopkins, and she's lecturing in front of her class. And she's talking about the division of cells. And it turns out that these cells continue to divide. And what they're looking at is cancer cells. And it's this whole notion of uh, 
you know, the body sort of destroying itself through cancer. And then she has that conversation with Kane when they're sort of frolicking in bed, if you will. And she talks kind of over his head about the notion that we're sort of our lack of immortality, the fact that we're going to die is built into our DNA. Yeah. Uh, that if we didn't have a certain aspect of what uh, we were created with, we wouldn't die. We wouldn't get old. The body wouldn't break down. We, we'd, we'd still survive. And then that notion is touched on again when uh, Lena is talking with Dr. Ventress and Dr. Ventress is explaining how uh, – help me out here if you guys remember the exact words or the, the quote, but uh, how she's talking about the fact that we all – it's not really suicide. It's self-destruction and that we all find ways to destroy ourselves, whether it's uh, – and, and they're hardly ever in big cataclysmic events. Mm-hmm. They're in subtle, small ways where we – you know. A sabotage a relationship or a marriage or whatever. It's it's the moment in the film where we as an audience get to reflect on Lena's infidelity and how that might be contributing greatly to her motivation about wanting to find Kane and go into the Shimmer to do it. Uh, an an almost drastically certain quote unquote suicide. Yeah. So yeah, I think the the notion of self destruction. Uh, on a micro level, if you will, down to the cell, and on a macro level, uh, to to not only pass the destruction of the individual as an entity, but the destruction of the collective unconsciousness, if you will, of all individuals. If we're all refracting our DNA into each other, and pieces of all of us are becoming pieces of part of, of everyone, mm-hmm then that changes the whole notion of individuality, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 The notion that you're talking about, that self-destruction, Freud called the death drive. When I teach my students about it, I talk about the the sense when you're learning to ride a bike uh, or do something difficult like that, and you've almost got it. You've almost got control, and you have this urge, just as you've almost got it balanced, to just to ditch the bike and crash. Because it's, in a sense, it's safer. I'm in control. I can crash. Hmm. Uh, and that's a key idea for Freud and for psychoanalysts after him, including Jung, is this idea that the death drive is part of a sense of control over our environment. That the reason we destroy ourselves is to have that sense of control, is to know what's going on and say, yes, this is exactly the way I thought it was. Uh, and so a sense of making something intelligible, making something easily accessible and understandable, mm-hmm. that is the death drive. That is self-destructive because I'm just mirroring back to myself and mirroring back to you the thoughts you already have, as opposed to doing something provocative, doing something like what this movie does. Uh, in in the uh, mythos of this film, uh, the film is the shimmer. It's trying to create something new. It's scary. You go in, it changes you, and you you do not come out the same you. Um, and so it, it's really reveling in that. The shimmer is not necessarily supposed to be scary. It's presented in that way in a lot of sense, but there's supposed to be a kind of hope to it of yeah. the creation of new life as we start to destroy ourselves. And you see it where different characters react differently to the change they undergo, um, where you have uh, Anya, played by Gina Rodriguez, who 
has a mental breakdown, uh, holds everyone hostage um, because she begins to see the lines in her palm moving and to see herself changing in such a way. Uh, Josie Raddick, Tessa Thompson, incredible actor. uh, She has this wonderful scene of acceptance and peace so much in contrast to her life outside of the shimmer um, marked by suicide attempts marked by fear. There is none of that in the shimmer for her. Um, And so Uh, different people, by the way, the, the name of the third book is acceptance. Oh, Oh. there you go. (laughs) The three stages of the annihilation, I suppose. Annihilation, authority, acceptance. Yeah. I, one of the reviews I read termed the shimmer as kind of the ultimate life hack, like life hacking life. And uh, perhaps like the fact that the moment they walk into the shimmer, they are no longer in control. Like that death drive has in a way been removed uh, or kind of like neutralized, I suppose. I don't know. And c- control is the name of the protagonist of the second book. Jeez. Wow. Yeah, no, dude, it's a it's a cool book series. <laughs> wow. Okay. Although I did read uh, a note somewhere, it was in a review, I think, maybe even in Priscilla's review, that uh, you know Alex Garland he wrote a draft of the screenplay before the second and third books had come yeah. out, and he wrote a draft and then and then showed it to the novelist uh, Jeff Vandermeer. And said, hey, man, this is what I've got so far. Are you cool with it or not? Or, you know, what's your comment? And mm-hmm. Vandermeer was, wow, you're, you're really taking it in a different kind of direction. And that's perfect. My novel is what it is. And it exists as a novel. You do your thing in the movie and take it where you want to go. And Garland has basically been quoted as saying, I, I wrote not a, a screenplay based on the novel. It's based on the, my dream of the novel. Yeah. Mm. So he he felt a freedom to sort of let the impression the novel had on him uh, create a consciousness that led to him writing the screenplay without having to reference back to the actual novel. I think he read it, started writing, and never read the novel again. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm not surprised that it doesn't adhere to sort of a lot of things that the novel includes or doesn't include. But I, I think that's the beauty of the art form, right? I'm all for freeing the director up from those. Um, however, this is one case where I actually don't believe the director. Um, not mm. because uh, you know he knew too much from novels or he must have continued reading it, uh, but because it frees him up to have this kind of control over his own work and say, you know, this was not inspired from it. Uh, but again, the opening of the movie is taken from the third book. You know, is there the possibility that I mean, he continued reading? I mean, they, they, they talked about it. Yeah. Uh, we don't get the the race of the characters mm. until the second book um, because they're so mm-hmm. nondescript. Uh, but that frees him up from any accusations of whitewashing. Well, I didn't actually read the second book. You know, I, I didn't know that was happening. Uh, so there's a lot of of ways that he gets to move if he can say he hasn't read the second book. The other reason that I would say that is the second book came out three months after the first book. Mm-hmm. Uh, all three books were released within eight months of each other. So all three books were done. Uh, when he read the first book. So it's it's certainly possible he never read anymore. Uh, I want to free him up to make his own movie that's uh, distinct from all, everything else. Uh, and I love the idea of him making 
it in a, it's his dream of the novel. I, I love that depiction of it. Uh, at the same time, I'm not sure I trust him uh, when he's saying those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jay, you mentioned the the end of the of the film and you know burying the lead, but spoilers <laughs> everywhere, everywhere in this thing. Uh, but maybe to kind of walk us through the end of the film and like how that catapults you out of the movie and where that puts you out of the movie. Um, because people, you know, in modern movie discourse are like, well, how does it end? Or what does the ending mean? So let's take some time to unpack it and what your responses to it were. So the, the thing that annoyed me about the ending was this seeming triumph. And again, maybe it's just because I'm, I'm colored by the books and there's no sense of triumph there. But it, it just seemed so absurd that she throws a grenade and all of a sudden she blows up this evil that has permeated the entire ecosystem. As the, the trees start to crash around it uh, in their, their crystalline beauty, uh, it's a gorgeous scene, really visually stunning. But any idea that she has destroyed the monster just felt like such a disappointment to me uh, because the monster is so mm. much more horrifying because it's it's everywhere. It's in your DNA. It's not something that can be blown up. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't take that scene sort of in the way that you took it, Jason. I, yeah. I, I understood it by that point that, you know, whatever was burning was just a physical representation mm. Yeah. of something that had already permeated beyond the point of no return. Good. Cool. That makes sense. Whether that was physically easy to see or so subtle, it was at the genetic level. Uh, so that I, you know, that's the climactic scene and it was a beautiful scene and just amazingly conceived cinematically and, executed really well and has some incredible imagery and the score around that scene was just fantastic, but that's the climax, right? I mean, the movie ends on a sort of denouement that basically gets you back to that horror, horrific spot of, okay, it's the quiet horror, the subtle horror of the glint in those eyes, uh, between Kane and, uh, Lena, Right. Uh, and that's what makes it that, that's what leaves you thinking and, and leaves it ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so going back to Ex Machina, uh, Alex, Garland, Alex Garland's previous film, the end of Ex Machina has the character played by uh, Alicia Vikander. Uh, she leaves the compound and is now out in civilization and it had that scene for me had more i guess like insidious overtones of like she's going to exact revenge and compare comparing that to the end of annihilation when lena asks kane are you kane and he goes i don't think so are you lena and all she can do is have this almost like a, a gasp with this, this inhale of uncertainty or a realization of something, of something has been changed and something has been altered. And you see a glimmer or a shimmer in both of their eyes. 
I took it to be maybe not triumphant, but like it's not a it's not like a horror twist ending where it's like, oh, but the monster's still alive. It's just like, no, it's it's right and dare I say natural that Lena has been changed. That Lena is not who she was when she walked in. Definitely. Um Yeah, I even hesitate to to call the the alien monstrous. I mean, it, it, it sort of, you know, I can understand us feeling uh, horrified by what the alien is doing, but it, the, the film takes pains in Lena's sort of debriefing interrogation, clean or uh, quarantine room scene yeah. uh, at the very end in her uh, back and forth with Lomax who's played by Benedict Wong. Um, you know, he's asking her, Hey, it attacked you. And she's like, it didn't attack me. It reacted to me. And then it was mirroring me. Mm -hmm. And, and I don't know what it wanted. I don't know that it wanted anything. It it just is right. Mm -hmm. And, and it's being can have a catastrophic effect on life as we know it. We see that throughout the film uh, and assume the seeds of it are still there in Lena and, and uh, Kane by the film's end. But if the film is really about, you know, again, I shout out uh, Priscilla in her review. She talks about annihilation being about how we destroy and reconstitute ourselves. Sometimes we self-destruct in response to pain, grief, trauma, betrayal, illness, and sometimes it's for no reason at all. And if the film really is about the process of destroying and reconstituting ourselves, and if that's what really a, the alien is just introduced a methodology for that, then yeah, you can you can walk away from the film with a sense of hope because anybody that goes through trauma, the trauma changes you forever. And and hopefully you work through that trauma and get out on the other side in a good place, but a place that is never not unchanged. You're different from where you started. Yep. Yeah. And there's a hopeful way to think about that, I'm sure. Uh if if you want that perspective at the end of this film, it doesn't have to be the horror ending, so to speak. The monster lives. That's why I have trouble con- you know, talking about it as a quote-unquote monster rather than yeah. just an alien form that has this kind of effect. I mean, Jason, you you referenced 2001, mm-hmm. you know, what what is the human at the end of 2001? We don't even know, you know, what is how? <laughs> yeah. And it pulls on, I mean, that maybe, um, I almost want to put ex machina more in conversation with 2001, although visually it, it, it didn't have those connections for me, uh, because ex machina is about artificial intelligence, right? Uh, what, what does it mean to be human? Um, and then Alex Garland comes at it, I think with, from the opposite direction, in uh annihilation what does it mean to be human it's still the question and instead of intelligence it's about biology mm-hmm. if if our biology changes when do we stop being human where's that line not to go back to the book but in the book we get to see a little bit more of uh imagine seeing the next scene with tessa thompson right we don't get that scene in the movie huh. it might be too horrifying uh but those are some of the scenes that in the book that are the most um kind of chilling and stay with you uh, the the most important one is that she sees a dolphin at one point, and as it swims by and looks at her kind of pleadingly, 
she realizes it has her husband's eyes. And it's a just the it just really rocks you. Um and so I I like that because it those those thoughts from the film, I think we just our imagination does run wild with, you know, wh- what happens to someone after this, after we see the the guy in the pool who has turned into he's got eels for guts and he's turned into some kind of flowering moss thing and just spread all over. He's turned into an art installation. Yeah. yeah. And he's real pretty, guys. He's he's real pretty. <laughs> um at what point where where is that line where he stopped being human? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and if we think about the five women uh who entered the shimmer and we follow through their journey, the thing that that got me right away is wait a minute, they've been gone for like 4 days and they don't remember what happened mm. since walking into the shimmer. That that just kind of zeroed the playing ground for me. That just made that just said I can do anything I want with this story. I can take it anywhere now because I didn't have to l- link point A to point B. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. I I jumped right to point C. And I've had that happen in other films and it really annoyed the heck out of me and it and I loved it in this film. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought it was great. It was like you know, like wow, if we only knew what happened in those 4 days of lost memory or however many days it is. I, I'm not even sure they're sure. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Before we move to tech and music and some of those other smaller things, I want to uh, bring up the symbol of the snake eating itself. I'm going to mispronounce it. Uh, the, is it our Boros? Yeah. Okay. I think it's, uh, I think it's a, uh, the, the original, uh, root language is, I believe, Greek. It is okay, and which which there's an alternate spelling with that doesn't have the O at the beginning oh. of it. So I think the pronunciation is Euroboros. Uh, Euroboros. Uroboros. Uroboros. Okay, yeah. I will yeah. definitely defer to Jason on that one. Likewise, uh, but it is uh, so. It's a snake eating itself in the shape of a figure eight in. As far as the tattoo is concerned, yeah, uh, for the characters here, and it appears uh, on several of the characters at sometimes varying times, and maybe not to get too minute of like, oh, when does the tattoo show up? But for you, what does the like? What's the purpose, or what does the tattoo uh, point to, or I guess like? bring out of the story so it's I, I think it's a similar device as the lost time in that it creates this opening for interpretation it, it really it it casts our interpretive schema adrift right okay. uh, because it's it's not really easy to pin down you know the film is trying to tell you something but i don't think that the pieces are there to make a cohesive argument for well because so-and-so had this then so-and-so because it's just not that kind of movie it, it wants you instead to be just kind of cast adrift and say, oh, ooh, I don't think they had that. Wait, what's happening? And the idea of this, the snake eating its own tail has this, this idea of eternity, especially when coupled with the infinity symbol, right? Of going on and on forever, uh, of everything being connected in a single loop, uh, but also of self-destruction. Uh, the snake is literally eating its own tail. 
Uh, so those are, those are some, some of the big themes for me. Yeah, definitely. Going back real quick to the, that notion of trauma, uh, Jorge, that, that you excellently brought up, uh, the fact that both Lena and Kane are ex-military and uh, the uh, military having and going through PTSD, uh, going through trauma and going through trauma that lasts years, decades, the rest of their life. To me, that's where my mind first went of how like how Lena is processing her time in the shimmer is different uh, because of that PTSD, that grief, that anger. And you saw it when she uh, shoots the albino crocodile, like you see her just lock right into that military mode, but in other moments really dealing with and failing to grasp and sit with that PTSD. Um, yeah. So we could talk about that stuff all day, all night. Uh, but I wanted to give shout out to the, a little bit of the tech talk, the sound, uh, specifically the music and sound design uh, of this film. Um, the two kind of spearheads for that, Jeff Barrow and Ben Salisbury, uh, famous for uh, Portishead. Uh, they've scored uh, some episodes of Black Mirror. They scored Ex Machina uh, and a lot of other BBC work. But I was initially very thrown off by the acoustic guitar Crosby, Stills, Nash, mm-hmm. and then juxtaposed with this, like, again, like the unquiet horror or this, like this unsettling that slowly has this increase in tension and tension and tension until this beautiful suite at the end, the last like third of the movie is this like beautiful horror show. Uh, that's so wonderfully scored. Yeah, I was reading earlier today about how the dramatic climactic scene of uh, uh, Lena engaging with the alien in the lighthouse and all that Mm. that culminates in, that that's the only time in the score that they use synth. Mm. And it blew me away because... That synth piece that, you know, that surrounds that cue and and that whole sequence is so powerful, is so enmeshed in the visual for me. I can't separate them that it just made me feel like, oh, the whole score synth, which I know it's not, but it just blew me away that it was, that's the only part that was synth. Uh, Yeah. And it, you know, fitting because it's the alien part. Right. Uh, But. But yeah, I just I just thought great great work by those guys. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and I'd point you to uh, another podcast. Don't listen to us. Go listen to uh, Binge Mode, uh, which has a fantastic analysis of the theme, uh, and particularly uh, tritones, which were known at one point uh, during the Middle Ages as the devil's music. Uh, and so there's there's a great history of music and the use of tritones in the theme. Uh, definitely worth checking out. Oh man. All right. Um, before we go, I uh, want to give a chance for any any topics or things that we've not brought up yet. Uh, Jay, is there anything 
you'd want to uh, discuss before we call it a night? I, I want to talk about telomerase because I've been like biting my tongue on it the whole time. Did we talk about telomerase at all? Uh, no. No. <laughs> okay. I think I would have cool. remembered that. I, I wish so I this would. Is, this is the other thing I was thinking of with uh, the Ouroboros, the snake eating its tail. Uh, okay. Telomerase is an enzyme in your body. And uh, when your DNA is replicated uh, as the cell um, copies itself and, and makes new cells, actually, whenever that happens, there's a little bit of the cell, of the DNA, that doesn't get copied. It's kind of like a runway for the copying mechanism to, to start up. And so it needs like just, just a couple of those, um, uh, of those little pieces of code to kind of get into gear, and then it goes on from there. And you, and you cut off you know, four or five little pieces of code every time you do it. Hmm. And that means that our telomeres, which is this, what this area is, uh, which are largely junk DNA, just kind of repeating code that doesn't do anything, uh, are sitting at the ends of our chromosomes uh, doing nothing. Um, and slowly getting in the way, and the loss of them is associated with all kinds of things about aging. Uh, it's thought that perhaps the entire cause of aging, uh, or most of what we associate with aging, is the loss of our telomeres. Basically, at some point, as they eat away that that runway, they eventually get to the good stuff that we're actually using, uh, and that what we think of as getting old is the loss of that good stuff. Now, this is really interesting because there's an enzyme called telomerase, which copies the runway first and puts it right back on right after it takes off so that you never lose any DNA. Wow. And this is where this becomes important. So you can visualize it as a snake eating its own tail. It kind of actually looks like that. That's what the chromosome looks like. You've got one thing like gobbling up another and it's, you know, birthing a new DNA as it does it. Now, there are two cells, two types of cells in the human body in which telomerase is active. Every cell in your body has the genes to run it. None of them have it activated except for these two. The two types of cells are germ cells, so sperm and egg, right? Because otherwise, human beings would just get worse and worse with each generation. We need <laughs> those things to keep replicating perfectly so babies are not born in their 70s. Good thing we're not getting worse right now. Mm. Right? So that's the first kind. The second kind <laughs> is cancer. <sighs> cancer cells have telomerase active. Uh, and that couples it back to the movie uh, because in that telomerase, in the copying it perfectly, they're not losing anything. You've got both birth and death. Uh, you've got cancer in multiple key characters in this film. And so people have been pointing towards autophagy. I've seen this in multiple places now. It's kind of like one of the themes and cells eating itself. And I'm going to biologically point instead to uh, telomeres and telomerase, um, which is this kind of promise and peril of, you know, what if we could fix it? What if we could make it so that it was active? And the idea is, yeah, what if we could? It might be real bad because that's also a key ingredient in cancer. Wow. Somewhere in this universe, Neil deGrasse Tyson is giving you <laughs> a round of applause. Uh, so, so sorry, um, you, you asked if I had anything left. There, there was one. I, I apologize. Man, and you swung for the damn fence. <laughs> so... I'm applying for college credit for that, listen. <laughs> yeah, oh, man. One, one last thing I, I should say is I assigned this uh, this film to my students in my non-human oh. rhetoric class. Uh, and I think you can understand why this would be good for a class on non-human rhetoric. Um, you know, talking about mm. what makes us human and what rhetoric succeeds yeah. and that kind of thing. Um, but, I, but I'm very fearful to go into class on Monday uh, and just realize that half the class has dropped. Because uh, the movie, <laughs> the book was not quite as rough as the movie. Uh, when I signed it, only mm -hmm. haven't read the book. Yeah, the moment you the moment you leap into telomerase, 
That's that's when half the class evaporates. I think it's when they cut open that guy and there's eels inside his belly. That's that's when the class. Holy oh, I, Moses. why did you assign this? Oh, yeah, I'm out. Wow. I'm out. Yeah. And I wasn't as freaked out as about what was in his belly is about how they found out what was in his belly. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Jorge, any, any parting thoughts or parting words for us? Well, a, a couple of the things that uh, Priscilla mentioned in at the end of her review kind of have stuck with me mm. and they're kind of related. I want to, I wanted to share them to hear what you guys think about them. Yeah. Um, one is that, you know, she basically says that Lena meets, uh, her own unconsciousness inside the lighthouse, that that's what the aliens reflecting back is kind of her shadow self. Mm. And the other thing that relates to that is, is Garland has been quoted as saying that the movie is, is about how hard it is to be, how hard it is to be a person. And I found those things pretty intriguing to think about in reflection after having seen the film. I didn't, I didn't experience those thoughts or those perspectives while I was watching. But some of that resonates for me after the fact. What do you guys think? I, I read a review that talked about it in a similar way um, in the sense of it, it's a perfect metaphor for depression. And I think kind of any self-destructive act, so addiction as well, and probably all kinds of other human actions. But that's what it feels like to be addicted, to be in a battle with yourself where the thing that's killing you is what you keep doing. And and the more you try mm-hmm. to fight it, the more it fights you because it's literally doing the exact same thing that you're doing. So it it was such a good metaphor for depression, for uh, addiction, for other mental health issues. Um, and metaphor may not even be the the right word for it. It, it just seemed to to visualize that really well. Mm. A representation of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah, it seemed. I think in that way, like there is a moment. Addiction, as awful as it can be, there are moments where it also, in a strange way, feels beautiful because it is a thing that you are in control of or in you have an intimate connection with. And as horrific as it might be, as strange and bizarre and unspeakable that it might be, Lena's dance with the humanoid, with the shimmer, her interaction is between her and the shimmer. It is so intimate and so personal that Kane's experience was totally different. And Ventress's experience was totally different. And in that, that metaphor, that idea of depression and addiction, what... What I would say is the similarity is not the, or not like the particulars, but just the overall feeling of intimacy that uh, addiction and depression and, and those feelings can at once, they're all consuming. And it's a thing that isolates you from everything else and everyone else. Mm. And this is your thing. Yeah. And that can be at times a very precious statement and at times a very, it is the thing that imprisons you always. Yeah. And in, in such, such a personal way, right? Such a a uniquely individual way. I mean, this is an invasion of the body snatchers where they, where everyone's a pod, right? Yeah. This, this is, this is a different kind of thing. Yeah. And, and in that uniqueness, I think there's, 
there's connections to that kind of thread, Dom. Definitely, Definitely. I see that. I, yeah. I got one last question for you. Uh, this is something I didn't realize till later. We talked already about the amnesia that happens in the first few days mm-hmm. and that they've actually been there for a few days and they don't remember it. When she comes out and she's been being interviewed by Benedict Wong, he says she's been there for four months. Hmm. There is no way that the film that we saw took four months. You know, that, that that's the amount of time being described by it. So I'm real curious, not just about the few days that were missed at the beginning, but by the other three and a half months at the end. Yeah. Because it might have covered like three nights. That's true. Yeah. What happened to her after that really raises a lot of the questions about who came out, um, how she continued to battle herself, and mm-hmm. and the changes that she's undergone, and how many, many of them are psychological and how many are biological. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and for me, it even calls into question the notion of time mm, and yeah. how has time been altered while they've been in there. Not only that, oh, stuff must have happened before and after the pieces that we saw of the film. Mm-hmm. That took, you know, more time than we were shown to make up the quote unquote four months. But, you know, is four months really four months? Has the shimmer affected everything? Yeah. Uh, everyone in that installation's perceptions, you know, mm-hmm. have, have has it bled in somehow that you don't even have to cross the threshold like the team did and walk into the shimmer somehow the shimmer's already affected you just because you know you're that close or or who knows what but yeah. right like do days pass differently right yeah in the shimmer yeah 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 and in a way that i mean there's there's a there's a long part of the film and maybe it never really gets fully resolved uh about is this all a shared psychosis? Mm-hmm. Are we having a collective dream rather than these things actually happening? You know, these did these guys go nuts uh, before us and leave us videotape that shows evidence of them going crazy and they killed themselves? And is that happening to us or is it something else? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. So I like the fact that the film toys with those questions without necessarily landing hard and fast on an answer, you know, and that ambiguity is part of, I think what makes the whole film so interesting, uh, make, makes me want to see it, you know, multiple times and and experience it and, and tease out, uh, what it feels like in this scene and what it feels like in that scene and what it all means together. So, yeah, it's a film you want to take a walk, with you know yeah yeah and i think it's going to be a film that that resonates for a long time i mean that that people are going to come back to and i hope so it's a shame that it's not getting a a non-us theatrical release because i think you know can you imagine not being able to see this thing in the theater with a huge screen and a and a great projection and a a fantastic sound system i mean this thing begs to be experienced as cinema. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. Christopher Nolan. Uh, <laughs> I, calm down. But not in 3D. Sorry. Right. Not in 3D. Screw 3D. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm really interested in that question of how will this film hold up. I don't think it's going to get any Oscar nods. It just does not feel like that kind of movie that, that the Academy is going to respect, uh, except for you know mm. some kind of technical awards or something like that. However... I want to go out on a limb and say that there will be movies that are nominated for Best Picture that in 10 years we will have forgotten 
and this movie will still be in our consciousness in some way. Yeah. Oh yeah. Because it's so affecting. Yes. Yeah. I, I, you know, if, if there is such a thing as a cinematic zeitgeist, I think this thing is going to permeate it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. I think it's going to sit in it and last in it. Whereas like you've said, Jason, and, and, you know, history has shown at the, shown us that there have been other films that have been awarded accolades, you know, in the relatively near term of their release and then forgotten or certainly, certainly judged as far less lasting than initially they thought they might be because of those accolades. And I think this one, it's just got so much stuff in it. It, it feels to me a little bit like, you know, we all recently, did a podcast on Blade Runner 2049, you know, and, and we had to revisit the original Blade Runner and that original Blade Runner, you know, that had a lasting effect on people. Yeah. And, and it created a, a reputation or or a perspective about the film that, that, you know, made it last much, much, much later and, and forced a sequel so many, many years after the original that it's, it might even be a record. I don't know. Right. Uh, And I think, you know, I don't want to, you know, say that this is the next Blade Runner, but I think it can have that kind of long lasting effect on people. I don't know if it'll have a quote unquote following or cult following that Blade Runner has, but, but yeah. And whether or not, you know, it's recognized by the Academy or any other awards giving entity, uh, I think it's just going to last on, on people's lists of Man, I I can't knock this thing out of my top list for the decade or for the yep. for yeah. the 20, 20 years or wherever it is down the road that people are, you know, going to be making lists and looking at them. So, I know it's going to last for mine for a while cuz I I'm still intrigued by it. And I I wish it was still in the theaters around me cuz I'd go see it again, but it's not. Yeah. yeah. I'll have to see if I can do that. Well, if it's around you at all, do yourself a favor, go see Annihilation. Uh, read the books, uh, the Annihilation, or the Area X, the Southern Reach Trilogy yep. is the, I guess, proper name uh, by Jeff Vandermeer. Annihilation, Authority, Acceptance. Got it. Yep. Okay. And uh, at least one of them and then a third of one is narrated by Bronson Pinchot in the audiobook version. Uh, he does a real good job. Perfect Strangers. Yeah. Leftovers. There we leftovers. go. Leftovers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well guys thank you so very much uh for leading us through it was a pleasure and uh very very thankful for the time together so to each of you good night and farewell good talking to you. always a pleasure dom thanks thanks jason peace out Thanks for listening to Overthoughts, a part of the Overthink Podcast Network. Uh, If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the Podcast Network. And if you're really feeling generous, go ahead and rate and review us on iTunes. That would really help us out in a big way uh, and would help us create more content to share with you as well. So as always, you can check out our website at overthinkpod.com. And our handle is at overthinkpod pretty much everywhere else. So go ahead and give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram and like us on Facebook. And that would help us by spreading the word. Uh, We're always interested in hearing from listeners, so please drop us a line and let us know what you think of the show. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, that kind of thing. Uh, Maybe even if you want to suggest uh, some topics for us to cover on a podcast, that'd be great. You can email us at overthinkpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for stopping by.